It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. Here's the good news. Nobody gives a damn about the January 6th committee. They're concerned about other things. I care because I know they're they're trying to squirrel their way into an indictment of a former president and the damage that does to our country and our system. But the fact is, this isn't resonating the way the Democrats had hoped. And we have some big decisions coming down from the United States Supreme Court. We will learn whether justices have been intimidated or not by the Democrat Party and their mob. And I believe if they unleash their mob, as they always do, and you'll notice the silence of Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi, as well as all their surrogates in the face of the violent mob that is the Democrat base, you'll notice that they're not trying to quell anything. They haven't even yet acknowledged the plot to assassinate a Supreme Court justice. The same Supreme Court justice... They tried to destroy before he got on the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh, just as they tried to destroy Donald Trump before he became president of the United States, just as they tried to destroy Clarence Thomas before he was on the Supreme Court, and on and on. Notice whose house they aren't protesting in front of, Mr. Producer. Chief Justice Roberts. That's rather interesting to me. Very interesting. Why is that, I wonder? Who's calling the shots? Who's telling them what to do and what not to do? And why aren't the so-called leaders of the Democrat Party trying to quell this in advance? Why aren't the media trying to quell this in advance? Ask yourselves. You know what people care about? Inflation, gas prices, food prices and availability, widespread crime, and border security. That's what people care about. And the government's responsible for all of it. All of it. Inflation, gas prices, food shortages... The rise in crime and the open border. And who's running the government? The same Democrats on the January 6th committee. The same Speaker of the House who appointed the Democrats on the January 6th committee. The same Joe Biden. Comes to a red light stop or a stop sign stop and falls off his bike, Mr. Producer. That's sort of defines his presidency, doesn't it? Falling off his bike? At least he was wearing a helmet. But this is the situation. Now, I have a piece here from Stanley Kurtz, who will be on the program soon. Bogus civics will push critical race theory on states. 
This is what Biden's focused on. This is why he cannot and is incapable of and will not address inflation and gas prices in any serious way. They're thinking of suspending the 18 cents a gallon federal gas tax. Great. Just like taking fuel out of the emergency fuel program. That's not how you fix this. It's not going to change a damn thing. I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's not going to change a damn thing. But they're trying to destroy this country as fast as they possibly can. Kurt says the misleadingly named Civics Secures Democracy Act, just now reintroduced in Congress, will allow the Biden administration to push critical race theory on every public school in the country over a six-year period. They have a $6 billion pot of competitive grant money will create a de facto national curriculum, just like Common Core. States desperate to tap into federal gravy train will have to tailor their civics and history grant proposals to the Biden administration's liking. And abundant evidence shows that Biden's education department is pushing CRT. So why are some Republican senators eager to help Biden spread CRT? I can't think of a quicker way to devastate Republican enthusiasm just before the midterms, he writes. Gee, I wonder which repubes. Murkowski, Collins, Romney, who else? Doesn't matter the federal law and bill itself disclaim the authority to formally impose a curriculum on states. The strings that Biden's bureaucrats will attach to these massive federal grants will suffice to lure states into adopting CRT. The left-leaning bureaucrats who staff education departments, even in red states, already favor critical race theory. Those bureaucrats will write the grant applications and divvy up the money. And Biden long ago signaled his intention to prioritize applications that promise critical race theory. This is his focus. Not on the border, not on the dollar, not on gasoline. If this bill passes this summer, as its sponsors hope, the Republican victory in the midterms will come too late to prevent the federal imposition of critical race theory. But what will happen when voters discover just months before the midterms that Republicans have betrayed them by using federal power to push CRT on the states. The Civic Secures Democracy Act, as it's called, is education madness and political suicide all wrapped up in one. Sadly, while this is largely a leftist-backed plan, we have Republican Senator John Cornyn to thank for giving it bipartisan political... What is with this guy Cornyn? What is with this guy Cornyn? Last year, in an open letter to Cornyn and Representative Tom Cole, the Civics Alliance, convened by the National Association of Scholars, appealed to both legislators to abandon this law. When Corner responded with misleading and mistaken claims about the bill, I rebutted them. Yet now the leftist-dominated coalition backing the bill has added Republican Senators Bill Cassidy and James Inhofe as co-sponsors of the newly reintroduced bill. Unless America's parents wake up and make themselves heard right now, there's a very real chance that CRT could be the new Common Core by this summer. And what's with this guy Cassidy from Louisiana? Guy, is he a rat fink? And James Inhofe out the back door. Out the back door, he's retiring. 
The new version of the bill is the same in substance as the original, although the language this time is stealthier. Obvious references to action civics, that is mandatory and invariably leftist, political protest for course credit, have been removed. If there's enough coded language to allow Biden's grant readers to favor action civics anyway. In the ultimate stealth move, at every turn, the bill prioritized civics programs directed toward, quote, traditionally underserved students, unquote. This sounds like a benign instruction to direct federal civics and history funding to districts with limited monies of their own. Unfortunately, something more disturbing is meant. In the new leftist vision of history and civics, both of these school subjects must be radically reinvented in order to appeal to, quote, they're traditionally underserved, unquote. The Biden executive order directing his entire administration to push critical race theory is actually called, quote, advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government, unquote. The idea is that recent immigrants and impoverished ethnic and racial minorities cannot embrace or excel at old-fashioned lessons on federalism or checks and balances. To truly excite and empower the underserved, you must supposedly teach about systemic racism and recruit students into Black Lives Matter-style protests for course credit. Now, if you read American Marxism, you'll know that this has been going on in colleges and universities now for at least three decades. For at least three decades. Now it's going to be in our public schools. Instead of motivating civic participation with a message such as, what a great country, wouldn't you like to get involved? The new leftist civics aims participation with a message such as to lure in underserved students with a new approach. Would you like to join the struggle against America's intrinsic racism and injustice? Fat federal grants will suffice to impose CRT and politicized action civics, quote-unquote, on the states. If the bill's coercive strategy goes further, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, often called the nation's report card, has long served as an effective national test of basic knowledge and skills. Yet for decades, it has intentionally avoided collecting data in civics and history that would allow for detailed comparisons between states. Doing so would allow Congress or the administration to tie federal aid to differential state performance on the test, which would allow the content of the test itself to force a de facto national curriculum on the states. The bill would change all that. The leftist civics community wants to align the test to its new vision of history and civics, then tie state grants to performance that would effectively override state and local control over standards and curriculum, handing the leftist civics community power to craft what amounts to a national curriculum. Again, if this law passes before the midterms, it won't matter if Republicans take Congress or not. Biden and his leftist education allies will have controlled the nation's curriculum for the remainder of his term or far longer. The bill would also funnel hundreds of millions of dollars to the overwhelmingly leftist nonprofits. Boy, these leftist nonprofits get a ton of your tax money. That push action civics, that's what it's called, action civics, and CRT on schools. And it would incentivize local school districts to work with them, 
On top of that, the same woke schools of education would churn out CRT-based curricula, would get their own pot of hundreds of millions of dollars to devise teacher training programs based on the new woke vision of history and civics. States and local school districts would then be pressed to work with these leftist education schools as a condition of their own grants. There's no more certain way to infuse CRT into the classroom. And that would be now and forever. The Civic Securities Democracy Act is the most pernicious federal education legislation I've ever seen, says Stanley Kurtz. He'll be on the program in 30 minutes. Now that it has been reintroduced with token, yet still noticeably increased Republican support, there's a very real danger that it could become law. And via the Civics Alliance, many prominent conservatives have already announced their opposition to the bill, including Mark Berlin, uh, Roger Kimball, Christopher Rufo, Eagle Forum, and so forth. Always quick on the update on cultural issues, former President Trump slammed the bill and its misguided Republican supporters in his Faith and Freedom Address last week. This is why you love Trump. Because he loves America. And he doesn't take any nonsense. This is why they hate him. So far, however, Republicans in Congress have been silent, as have Republican governors who stand to have their state's education systems effectively commandeered by a quiet alliance of leftist state and federal bureaucrats. It's Common Core 2.0, but this time with critical race theory, not fuzzy math, at stake. Let's hope more Republican officeholders speak out against this in the coming days. Nothing could tear the party apart faster than federalizing critical race theory by culpable neglect. Supporters of the just-reintroduced bill hope to sneak it by this summer, just before the August recess, while the public is occupied with the first post-pandemic vacation. And after a long nationwide rebellion against critical race theory, let's be sure not to drop the ball by allowing this noxious doctrine to take charge of our schools via the misnamed Civics Secures Democracy Act. That's the poison. It's called Civics Secures Democracy Act. John Cornyn supports it. Bill Cassidy supports it. Um, Let me remind myself who we're talking about here. But, you know, uh, Stanley will be here in a little bit. And he'll tell us the names of all Republicans who support it. You never would have believed this, would you? This is why your Constitution was set up the way it was. This is why there was never supposed to be a Department of Education, which is controlled by the NEA and the AFT. This is why education was supposed to be local. This is why parents need to be involved in their school boards. But at the national level, you're under attack at the national level, the state level, and the local level. This is a war on the public classroom to brainwash and control your children. This is why the Democrat Party needs to be thrown out, hook, line, and sinker, every last one of them. I'm talking to people in northern New Jersey. You got a guy, Goshheimer, who pretends to be a moderate. Folks, you got individuals in Virginia and Michigan who pretend to be moderate Democrats trying to distance themselves. You have to throw out every single one of these, every single one of them, 
and send a message or the country's lost. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Where are we going with this economy, folks? Well, let's think about this. Let's work it through. That's the way I do things. Let's work things through rationally. We look at inflation. Biden basically says there's nothing he can do about it. If you're going to blame... Putin, or you're going to blame the oil companies, or you're going to blame the Republicans for not passing your five and a half, six trillion dollar bill. He's not going to do anything effective. Even if he could, he won't do it. The man is a street hack politician, first and foremost. That's all he cares about. So inflation is going to get worse. I could be wrong, but I predict it will hit double digits. That's number one. On the fiscal side, Biden has introduced, he hasn't pulled it back. He's introduced the biggest spending bill in mankind's history. And you might say, well, what does that mean? It's a massive increase over the prior year. So he's not going to cut back even on the increases that he's proposing. So when it comes to the fiscal side, the fiscal side continues to be akin to Hunter Biden hooked on crack, except this time it's his father hooked on spending like a drunken Marxist. As I've said before, Reagan took the opposite tax, slash taxes, Attempted to slash spending, but held back as much as he could on the spending. Given that Congress never stops, and that so much of the budget now is automatic. But he did those things so the people wouldn't suffer. And so on the fiscal side, there would be growth. Maybe not as much as he wanted. While interest rates are going up. So there'd still be liquidity in the system. In the private sector. Less for the government sector. And as a result of that, with Volcker at the helm, interest rates came down and the GDP went through the roof. We actually had a quarter where it was almost 
And that economic growth and the growth in employment was so massive, it went through the George H.W. Bush presidency right into the Clinton presidency, for which Clinton, of course, took credit. But it was massive. Massive. The economy grew 25% in eight years under Reagan. 25%. Last quarter, the economy shrank. And this, I should say the quarter before last, we'll be getting a report on the last quarter soon enough. The regulations, number three, are smothering the private sector. He will not lift the regulations. He's expanding them. Now, they lie about it, the leases and all the rest, but he's expanding regulations. In other words, he is not pulling back from his destructive radical left agenda. So the country is going to become poor. Many of you are going to become poor. Many of you are going to have difficulties you never anticipated. Which is understandable. You live in America. I took one of my visits to the local supermarket. And I was looking at the shelves. I'd read that there is a peanut butter shortage. Have you heard that, Mr. Producer? And there was. There were a handful of jars of peanut butter left at my local supermarket. A handful. Plus more notices. This is a big chain about the supply chain issues. Again, in the toilet paper area, in the paper towel area, in the detergent area. I said to the pharmacist, or the assistant pharmacist, having any issues? She said, with certain drugs, certain drugs are tough to get. Imagine when that really kicks in. I walked through the baby aisle with the baby food and all. The shelves for the baby formula, there was no baby formula. How the hell does a mother handle this? And there were spotty absences of other foods. Just spotty. Now, that's not due to capitalism. That's due to government. When government thinks it can run the economy. And inflation is the gravest of all threats. Because you don't know how exactly it's going to go. That's why this host and you in the audience, we talked about this early last year and warned about it but nobody cared they were bored they didn't want to talking about spending and budgets very very boring well not to me and now you know why now you know why when the democrats put out their promises out there about how they're going to make things fair and more equal or now equitable how they're going to grow the economy from the bottom up and the inside out or whatever the hell the idiot says 
how people are going to pay their fair share and how they want to create more programs and redistribute wealth and all the rest of it. They're trying to redesign and manage the economic system. Now, when you watch these Democrats, are they capable of redesigning and managing the economic system? Are they capable of redesigning or managing a 7-Eleven? Which is no easy task. Are they capable of running the fryer machine at the McDonald's without burning the fries? Or burning themselves with the hot oil? Where do they get the knowledge to run an entire economy? But this has always been the rub. The rub between conservatives slash libertarians who understand that a market system is the only way to run an efficient, prosperous economy because you're the experts. You're the expert on what you do. Not a GS-12 in some department in Washington, D.C. You're the expert. You're the expert, not some politician who is moved to act by politics, self-aggrandizement, and his or her own empowerment. That stuff doesn't cross your mind. You're trying to do your job and reach your objectives and reach your goals. We don't have government entrepreneurs. We have private sector entrepreneurs. They're always regulating us. Notice we can never regulate them. They're always deciding how to tax us. Notice we can't tax them. They have something the private sector doesn't have. The power to make laws. The power to punish. The power to fine. And they have the power to use that to advance their ideology. And that's exactly what's going on. There's not a, I won't even say business, there's not an economic activity in this country that's not heavily regulated and taxed, usually by more than one level of government. There's not one. One. None. Whether it's small or large. The government's always your partner. Always your partner, particularly if you're successful. The government wants from you, takes from you. It empowers the government. There's no end to it. But then when something goes wrong because of them, war on our energy industry, the insanity of that in the name of climate change and clean air, and we're transitioning. Transitioning to what? I keep saying this. Those of you who are driving your vehicles right now, what are they transitioning us to? When you fill up your your car with gasoline, don't give me electric power. We talked about lithium batteries and how uh, the production of them is more dangerous to the economy and to the environment. And where's all this electricity coming from? These same people have destroyed the nuclear industry. They've all but destroyed the coal industry. Now Europe's turning back to coal. There is no solar industry. There is no wind industry for all intents and purposes. The technology comes over time. And we don't even know what technology holds 50 years from now. But we do know this. Bernie Sanders doesn't know. Joe Biden doesn't know. So they put the brakes on our economic system. They hollow out our economic system. 
They destroy the incentive. The incentive for investing in expanding power plants. For building more nuclear power plants. They destroy the incentive. And then they say, uh, what's the problem? Must be big oil. No, it's them. And they come up with phony. They come up with phony things. Take a little bit off your gasoline tanks, you know. Take some out of the petroleum reserve, the oil reserve fund emergency. And that'll fix it. Now that won't fix anything. Well, it must be Putin. That's not Putin, it's you. The politicians. We can't just have a red wave. We have to have a red tsunami. A tsunami. Any Democrat running that claims to be bipartisan must be defeated because they've all voted for Pelosi to be their leader. They've all voted for Schumer to be their leader. And those people control the legislation, the spending, the classrooms, and all the rest. You must defeat them, defeat them, regardless of when they come back and lie to you, regardless of how many coffee clutches they have, regardless if they shake your hand, you can smile, and you go into that booth and you vote against them. I want to say one thing to the state of Alabama. Put aside all the endorsements. There is one conservative running in the Republican primary now and tomorrow. One. The only proven conservative, Mo Brooks. The fact that Donald Trump has decided to endorse his opponent, for a variety of reasons I take it, I've not discussed it, doesn't change my support for Mo Brooks one iota. I love Donald Trump. I disagree with him. I disagree with him here. We need conservatives in the United States Senate. If we can't get a conservative Alabama, we're in big trouble. That's the truth. There is a piece in Alabama today. Here's who funded some of those pro-Katie Britt ads. Katie Britt is receiving millions and millions of dollars from out of state, from front groups that pretend to be Christian groups. Tons of dark money from political action committees. Much of it, much of it being pushed out of Washington, D.C., and specifically by Mitch McConnell. And I just pray the people of Alabama are not fooled by this are not fooled by this. They, Texas PAC, one is called, posing as an Alabama Christian organization. Together with other groups, got almost $15 million to PAC supporting Katie Britt. $15 million. They try and... Well, what, look, at, look at the sin that they commit here. A Texas PAC. It's called Texas PAC. Posing as an Alabama Christian group. It's according to records at the FEC. Who is this group? Alabama conservative Christians. Who are they really? 
Jimmy Rain of Alabama, $3 million into this campaign. Richard Shelby's raised $5.5 million. Francisco Calazzo, Alabama, $4 million. Mark Rowan of New York, 50000 Warren Stevens of Arkansas, 100000 Mitch McConnell's organized $2 million to put into this race. What does he know about Brit that we don't know? And they've created this shell game. Alabama Christian Conservatives Pack. The Defend America Pack. The Alabama Rhino Pack. The Alabama... What is it? What is it here? Future Pack. All the same rhinos, Washington, D.C. operatives, operatives throughout the country who do not want Mo Brooks in the Senate. Alabama. We need Mo Brooks. Mark Levin. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You are listening to the best of Mark Levin. These little kids... And Uvalde, at that elementary school, they didn't have a chance. They didn't have a chance as soon as that mass murder walked into that school. Not a chance. You had grown men armed, some even with body armor. who did nothing. You had a police chief who was not just an incompetent, he was a coward. How do you stand outside and you're armed and and you're trained and you hear gunshots going off in an elementary school And literally do nothing. My program is popular, among others, with police officers. They know I'm right. Because so many of them have come up to me and spoken to me. This isn't how you're trained to sit around and wait. You got to go into that building and try and kill the perp. That's it. Gunshot after gunshot after gunshot. You know there's little kids in there. The parents knew when they got there later. How do you do that? Steve McGraw is... Director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. And he was at a hearing today, a hearing that really mattered. And here in part is what he had to say. Cut one, go. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary 
was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room 111 and 112 was the on-scene commander, who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. The officers had weapons, the children had none. The officers had body armor, the children had none. The officers had training, the subject had none. One error, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers God. waited in rooms 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-sea commander waited for a radio and rifles. Then he waited for shields. Then he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that was never needed. The post-Columbine doctrine is clear and compelling and unambiguous. Stop the killing, stop the dying. You can't do the former unless you do, you can't do the latter unless you do the former. This is uh, disgusting. One hour, 14 minutes and eight seconds. One hour, 14 minutes and eight seconds. How do you, you're the commander, you're the chief. That's not even incompetence. It's worse, far worse. More cut to go. There's many references by Chief Arredondo uh, about the door being locked and needing keys and more keys and a master key and just constant references to keys. But is there any evidence whatsoever that shows through the video uh, as it was examined later that the door was ever, that there was an attempt to open the door or test whether or not it was locked? We could never see anybody put their hand on the door, and of course, up until, up until the breach. And then at the last, at the breach, we've gone back and talked to the breachers, re-interviewed the breachers, and they said, no, they didn't try the door handle beforehand. They didn't even try to open the door before they got a key. They didn't even try to open the door before they got a key. Remember the Border Patrol agent who was getting a haircut who was off duty, Mr. Producer? And he borrows the shotgun from his barber, runs to the elementary school, enters through another way, and walks through the halls. His wife is a teacher. His child is a student, emptying one classroom after another. How did he get in? Cut three, go. But I would suggest that doctrine, I'll go back again, it's very, very simple. Okay, you don't wait for a SWAT team, right? No time for a SWAT team. If you got one officer, that's enough, right? So you don't have to wait for 11 or 12 or 50 or 30. You got one's enough. If you got to, you're there on the scene, you got an obligation to go 
and immediately engage the shooter, okay, and stop the shooting and really stop, you know, which is really stop the killing because there could be other ways to kill it, and then stop the dying. That's, that's preached, practiced, and required the state of Texas. It just wasn't implemented. And by the way, it's preached, practiced, and required in every state in the union. It's my, my friend, a very close friend, an officer in Florida said to me, wait a minute. As soon as this report came out, he contacted me. He said, you go in. You go in. You don't wait. It, it just tears the heart out of your chest because you know these parents are suffering like hell. Remember I did a monologue here and then on Fox about the ruling class? About the bureaucracy, the educational bureaucracy. Really, the ruling bureaucracy at every level of this society within the government. And that they never take responsibility for what they fail to do. And they always want more power. They always want more power, which means you have less individual power. I dare say that if armed parents had gotten to that elementary school an hour and 14 minutes and 8 seconds, they would have broken into that school and done everything they can to save their kids. Even unarmed, but armed. It's Texas. States where you have carry, concealed carry. Even not concealed carry, where you go in your home and you get your weapon. An hour and 14 minutes and eight seconds. I think if a lot of parents knew those officers commanded by this individual, that if they were going to stand down for an hour and 14 minutes and eight seconds, those parents would not have tolerated what these officers did. Not for a second. And when we watch that video played over and over again, the police officers arriving, one car after another, one truck after another. They were standing there with their, with their weapons. Remember, Mr. Producer? Just standing there. Just standing there. Can you imagine what was going through the minds of those kids? They were old enough to think about what was taking place. Those who could were calling 911. The little girl who yelled help was executed. The two teachers grabbing those kids to try and protect them, shot in the back. Wondering. Thank God most police departments are not like this. Thank God. And all the talk on the gun control side is about the perpetrator. But if this were a scene in a house or a business or in a restaurant, 
That's why many of us, those who don't want to be armed, it's up to them. But that's why many of us believe in the right to carry. Because there's far more good guys than bad guys. Far more good guys than bad guys. And if you're in your home and somebody doesn't come or they come late, it's over. If you're sitting in a restaurant, police even get there in three minutes. It's enough to have a mass murder. But um, this justifies all logic. There's absolutely nothing, no law could have been passed, none, to fix what took place here. Protocol was violated. Training was violated. And nobody acted. Nobody acted. So a whole classroom was wiped out. An entire classroom of little kids. Mark Levin. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The great one makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. You can see the mischief out there with the pollsters particularly with liberal groups, liberal colleges and universities. They keep polling Trump versus DeSantis. You notice that, Mr. Producer? DeSantis is running for governor. He could run for president at some, but he's running for governor. But they know that'll get under Trump's skin, and Trump may start attacking DeSantis. So that's what they're about. That's why they're doing this, just so you know. And also, they keep reporting on these primaries in some of these states like Georgia. Georgia has an open primary system where Democrats and independents can move into the Republican primary and vote, and they've been encouraging Democrats to do that at a high level. Or they can easily switch their party and vote in in the Republican primary. That took place in Georgia on the nomination of Kemp and uh, among others. So just so you understand how this works. And then uh, the same thing in Alabama and other states. This open primary system, I don't know why the Republicans do this, or the Republican state legislatures tolerate it. It's problematic. All right, I want to get back to the economy. I told you the other day I read a fairly hidden report It's not getting the attention it deserves that we're going to be running out of diesel fuel. And that would be a complete disaster. And over at the Citizen Free Press, I must confess, I don't know who's behind that, but it's a 
It's a good interview. I'm guessing it's an individual. They talked to a trucker, and there are many truckers saying this, that they're warning. Diesel oil and engine oil is going from scarcity to non-existent. Scarcity to non-existent. So we're reaching a point now, ladies and gentlemen, that diesel oil is on reduced supply and that it's the supply is getting smaller and smaller. And this will have an enormously negative effect on the economy. You can't move product. You can't move product. Food, medical supplies, material for building, clothing, so many things. I mean, your imagination is limitless. The reality is limitless. Nobody's talking about this. Nobody. And when you hear Biden today, and I've played most of it, he has no way of dealing with this. Because he is a prisoner to his base. He's a prisoner to an ideology that does not allow them to produce our way out of this. And then they start their lies. Their endless lies. Here's a perfect example. Biden again at the White House today. Cut seven. Go. So for all those Republicans in Congress criticizing me today for high gas prices in America, are you now saying we were wrong to support Ukraine? Are you saying we were wrong to stand up to Putin? Are you saying that we would rather have lower gas prices in America and Putin's iron fist in Europe? I don't believe that. Look, I get the easy politics of the attack. I get that. But the simple truth is gas prices are up almost $2 a gallon because Vladimir Putin's ruthless attack on Ukraine, and we wouldn't let him get away with it. All right. Now, Jerome Powell, the hearing today, basically says what we've been saying because it's the facts. And he's being asked by Bill Haggerty. Senator Bill Haggerty of Tennessee has really turned out to be quite a good senator. Let us uh, check this out. Cut eight, go. Of 2021, inflation was at 1.4%. By December of 2021, it had risen to 7%, a five-fold increase. Now, since the war in Ukraine began in late February, the rate of inflation has risen incrementally, another 1.6%, to a current level of 8.6%. So again, uh, from 7% to 8.6%. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Wow. Inflation is the driver. It's the driver on fuel prices and food prices and everything else. Now, inflation was high before, certainly before the war in Ukraine broke out. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the facts. These are the statistics. They're right in front of our face. And yet Biden continues to lie about this. His staff continues to lie about this. His phony economic experts, such as they are, they continue to lie about this. One more time, Mr. Producer. Eight. Go. 
In January of 2021, inflation was at 1.4%. By December of 2021, it had risen to 7%, a five-fold increase. Now, since the war in Ukraine began in late February, the rate of inflation has risen incrementally, another 1.6%, to a current level of 8.6%. So again, uh, from 7% to 8.6%. Given how inflation has escalated over the past 18 months, would you say that the war in Ukraine is the primary driver of inflation in America? No, inflation was high before, certainly before the uh, war in Ukraine broke out. Okay, now that's good. He told the truth. But now we get to the actions of the Federal Reserve Board. The Federal Reserve Board's job is to maintain sound money. Sound money, that's its purpose. That's why it was founded. Sound money. So what is driving unsound money? What is driving inflation? Now, ladies and gentlemen, since early in the Obama administration, long time ago, the Federal Reserve has been printing, 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 and printing money. That's what it's been doing. It's been pumping the prime and priming the pump. It has been, as I've said before, the drug dealer to the fiscal drug addicts in the White House and in Congress when it comes to spending. And Jerome Powell will not admit it. He's asked a question by Senator John Ossoff, another Marxist out of Georgia. Basically a trust fund baby. Cut nine, go. Right now is the principal driver of the increase in the price level elevated consumer demand, elevated demand, or is it supply constraints? I know we're facing both, but I'm asking you to allocate, as you can, some share to each phenomenon. Yeah, I just would say it's clearly uh, both factors are, are principally at work here. You, you couldn't get this kind of high inflation without strong demand, and you certainly couldn't get it without the kind of supply issues that we've had both in the labor market reflected in high wages and then in, in the goods market reflected in what's happened with, with uh, um, durable goods. And, and cars in particular, you look there, there's a, it's been this, driven by semiconductor shortage. Really? And how much of this has been driven by your failure to make the right decisions when it came to money supply? So the question was not a very good question. And, of course, the main variable, he gave him choice A, choice B, but he didn't give him choice C, which is you, Mr. Powell, and your board. You and your board. We talked about this, that they didn't see inflation coming, or they didn't think it would be that bad, or they thought it would be transitory, and on and on and on, and it surprised them. This is his job. This is what he does every day, every hour of every day. We sit here behind a radio. I did major in history and poli-sci and then later economics, but I'm not an economist per se. But I do have common sense. I can reason. I can rationalize. There are the laws of economics. They are what they are. They do not change. And what about oil? What does he think about that? Isn't that a problem? I'm pulling this together, these various clips, so you can see that the problem isn't the oil companies, the problem isn't the consumer, you, 
and on and on and on. The problem is the ruling class. They are incompetent. They don't take responsibility for anything. They're largely unaccountable. What about higher oil prices? Senator Kirsten Sinema asks, cut 10, go. What is an appropriate proportion of current U.S. inflation to assign to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine? And how are you thinking about these events in the context of setting monetary policy? Well, I would say that, you know, the, the increase in commodity prices are, are clearly connected to, to the war in Ukraine. Um, and uh, so that, that part of inflation um, um, would be certainly much lower uh, if, uh, than it is without the war in Ukraine. And, you know, there, really there's nothing that our tools, our tools work on demand, and there's a job for our tools to do here. There is a, there is a, a job to moderate demand so that it can be in better balance with supply. But it, it wouldn't, uh, we, we don't think that we have the answer to higher oil prices uh, you know, due to the global um, oil situation. So it's amazing how he conflates so much in that answer. Literally conflates it. Consumer goods. Consumer goods. Commodity prices are clearly connected in some respects to what's going on in Ukraine, he says. That aspect of it would lower inflation. Without the war, and of course he just told uh, Senator Haggerty that inflation was due not to the war in Ukraine. Did you not, Mr. Producer? Then he says there's really nothing we can do about higher oil prices due to the global oil situation. But that's pathetic. When Reagan first came into office, he immediately deregulated gasoline and deregulate, that is natural gas, and deregulated oil. Immediately. Immediately. And that led to a massive growth in the production of fossil fuels. But he dare not say that because he will be attacked by the Democrats. And he owes his job this time around to Joe Biden, doesn't he? But what about spending? We know what you did on the monetary side, easy money, over and over and over again, printing, printing, printing. But what about spending? And the great Senator John Kennedy asks him about that. Cut 11, go. What if the United States Congress said, look, we've got a budget. We're going to freeze spending. We're going to stop injecting more money into the economy. We're going to freeze spending until Powell can get control on the demand side. Would that help? You know, I, I feel like giving you advice on, on what to do when I'm asking when we're, not getting our own, we're not getting our own job done. I feel like maybe a better, better thing to do would be for us to get our, get our house in order and do the job you've assigned us. Well, let me put it another way. Let's suppose, forget about Congress. Let's suppose that every governor in every state and every legislature in every state got together tomorrow and said, I know it's not like it happened, and said, we are going to freeze our budgets. We're not going to spend a penny more than's already budgeted. Would that help? Would it help? Sir? Would it help with? Would it help uh, 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 reduce inflation? It would depend on, it might, it might, but I mean, it would take, 
Again, I, again, I'm, I'm giving you. A, I'm, I'm scoring fiscal policy. Well, I understand really you're being careful, but Mr. Chairman, we, we, the, the United States Congress, in addition to its regular budget, has spent seven trillion dollars. I'm not saying all of it was was unnecessary. On top of that, the Fed's increased its balance sheet from one and a half trillion dollars to nine trillion dollars. Nine trillion dollars. I know you're cutting it back. But we've injected all of this money into the economy, and then people go, well, we have inflation. Duh. Give me some help here. Tell me what we can do. Hey, um, I, I'm really focused on what we can do, uh, which is shrink our balance sheet and raise interest rates and, and get supply and demand all back. All right, there you go. There you go. There you go. I have to take a break. So he won't say, yes, cut spending. He won't say yes, open production of fuel. He won't say yes, we've contributed mightily here at the Fed to inflation by printing. He won't say cut your spending and we should control the monetary system. And that's basic stuff. And so the ruling class, we are filled with incompetence, ideologues, And that's why we are where we are. Not because of the war with Ukraine. Even though the Putinoids want you to think that because they want Ukraine to fall. Because they have this romantic view of of a genocidal murderer named Putin. And it's, it's not the first time it's happened in this country. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. I watched part of this hearing again today. I had to shut it off again. There's this guy, the former acting deputy attorney general. There's something about him I really do not like. Donahue, I believe is his name. One of the things he said is another fellow, Jeff Clark, and I don't know any of these people personally. I've met Rosen on one occasion. That's it. He said Jeff Clark had never handled a criminal case. He was unqualified to be attorney general. I don't know if he was qualified or unqualified. As I said, I know nothing about the man, but I do know this. Was Robert Kennedy qualified to be attorney general when he was 34 years old? He never handled a criminal case. So as soon as I heard that, I said, this guy's cocky as hell. And again, you have testimony that's not challenged. No questions can be raised. Even a simple one like that. But that's not really what I want to start off with. The Supreme Court today, whenever I see a decision written by Clarence Thomas, I take my time and I read it. Because the man is brilliant. And he actually believes in the Constitution. So what a 6-3 decision today... In a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. et al. versus Superintendent of New York State Police, Bruin. So let me read you the syllabus. Because I can't read all 135 pages and keep you as listeners. State of New York makes it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home. An individual who wants to carry a firearm outside his home may obtain an unrestricted license to, quote, have and carry, unquote, a concealed pistol. 
pistol or revolver if he can prove that, quote, proper cause exists. That's the key phrase. Proper cause exists. That's what's in the New York law. An applicant satisfies the proper clause requirement only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. Now, that's almost impossible. Petitioners Brandon Koch and uh, Robert Nash are adult law-abiding New York residents who both applied for unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on their generalized interest in self-defense. The state denied both of their applications for unrestricted licenses, allegedly because Koch and Nash failed to satisfy the so-called proper cause requirement. Petitioners then sued respondents, state officials who oversee the processing of licensing applications, for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging that respondents violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights by denying their unrestricted license applications for failure to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed petitioners' complaint, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. In other words, they threw it out, both courts. Both courts relied on the Second Circuit's prior decision in Kalaski versus County of Westchester, which had sustained New York's proper cause standard, holding that the requirement was substantially related to the achievement of an important government interest. And here we summarize the holding. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. In a prior case, District of Columbia versus Heller, the court held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. And under Heller, when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution <laughs> presumptively protects that conduct. And to justify a firearm regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. They go on. Historical analysis can sometimes be difficult and nuanced, but reliance on history to inform the meaning of constitutional text is more legitimate and more admirable than asking judges to make difficult empirical judgments about the costs and benefits of firearm restrictions especially given their lack of expertise in the field. Now, that is a big point that nobody's pointing out. He's saying, look, originalism versus activism, it's our job to look at the text and try and discern what was intended. Not to sit around and say, you know, we think this makes sense or we think that doesn't make sense. Federal courts tasked with making difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of Intermediate scrutiny, which is a concocted, completely phony standard the court has created, often deferred to the determinations of legislatures. While judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. 
The Second Amendment, quote, is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, unquote. It surely elevates above all interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense from the Heller case. So the test that the court set forth in Heller and applies today requires courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. And by the way, what I'm doing now, reading you the syllabus. Uh, most hosts won't do that because it's just not spicy enough. But for me, it's spicy to the 10th degree and to you too. So we know exactly what they're talking about. Because this has to do with what? Your Bill of Rights, your liberty. Of course, the regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction generation in 1868. But the Constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those the founders specifically anticipated, even though its meaning is fixed according to the understandings of those who ratified it. told you, when you get a majority opinion from Clarence Time, any opinion out, you really got to read it. Indeed, the court recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms of existence in the 18th century. And he goes on. To be clear, I'm skipping around a little bit. Even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. For example, courts can use analogies to long-standing laws and so forth. Having made the constitutional standard endorsed in Heller more explicit, the court applies that standard to the case before it. Number one. It is undisputed that petitioners to ordinary law-abiding adult citizens are part of the people whom the Second Amendment protects. And no party disputes that handguns are weapons in common use today for self-defense. The court has little difficulty concluding that the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Koch's and Nash's proposed course of conduct, carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. Nothing in the Second Amendment's text draws a home public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, and the definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry. Moreover, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and confrontation can certainly take place outside the home. Number two, the burden then falls on respondents, that would be the New York State, to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearms regulation. To do so, respondents appeal to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. But when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. The Second Amendment was adopted in 1791, the 14th Amendment in 1868. Historical evidence that long predates or postdates either time may not illuminate the scope of the right. With these principles in mind, 
The court concludes the respondents have failed to meet their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. So New York creates this new requirement. You have to have a proper cause in order to carry the gun that you have a right to carry because you've already been cleared, background checks, New York's law, that you have a right to own, that you have to leave it in the house and you can't take it outside the house. Respondents, substantial, okay, he's, so he takes down uh, what the arguments are, the common law offenses, uh, and so forth. All the look at history, the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than other Bill of Rights guarantees. The exercise of other constitutional rights does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers some special need. The Second Amendment right to carry arms in public for self-defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. Opinion delivered by the, to the, uh, of the court, Thomas. He's joined by Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. By the way, I've been pretty critical of uh, Andy McCarthy and even John Turley because I don't feel they have raised enough the issue of the opposition and questioning other witnesses. But I have to say today they did a pretty good job, actually. So I give them credit where credit is due. All right, back. There's a very good summary of this by Charles Cook at National Review. In New York Rifle versus Bruin, the court affirmed that gun rights are due the same protection as all other constitutional rights. It's not only the most important Second Amendment ruling in recent times, it is potentially the most important Second Amendment ruling in American history. And one of the reasons for that is its author, Clarence Thomas. For all the brouhaha, the question at hand was rather straightforward. Can the state of New York require that applicants for gun carry permits demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community? Or is New York obliged by the Constitution to offer a shall-issue regime of the sort that 43 of the other 49 states have adopted? So the left is trying to suggest this is some kind of a radical decision because they're nuts. That's what they are. They don't believe in individual liberty except when it comes to their ideology. By a 63 vote, the justices decided that the latter approach is required. In the United States, Clarence Thomas' majority opinion concluded, authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements. Without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on a perceived lack of need or, or suitability. So those of us who have carry permits, you have to meet the requirements for a carry permit. A bureaucrat or a judge is not free to sit there and say, you know, you don't really need this gun. You don't really need this gun. And while there is nothing illegal about America's existing state-level permitting systems, in other words, they can permit them. They can place some requirements on them. 
Those systems may not be mere smokescreens for outright prohibition or unequal protection or unacceptable delay. We do not rule out, Thomas added in a footnote, any constitutional challenges to shallow issue regimes where, for example, long wait times and processing license applications or exorbitant fees deny ordinary citizens the right to public carry. So states are free within a range to make decisions about having weapons, but they can't have the ability and delegate it to a bureaucrat or a judge or so forth to say, well, look, you don't really need it. That's not good enough. As Justice Alito was keen to note, the holding decides nothing about who may lawfully possess a firearm or the requirements that must be met to buy a gun, nor does it decide anything about the kinds of weapons that people may possess. So the bottom line, writes Cook, New York is allowed to exclude carry permit applications on a categorical basis. For example, the applicant has a felony conviction, but not on a subjective one. For example, the applicant doesn't need a gun in the view of the determining officer. That's all it did. That's all it did. A very modest opinion, very reasoned opinion, built on the prior Supreme Court cases and so forth. But on the other hand, you can't allow states, particularly blue states, to just willy-nilly deny people the right to have these weapons.